0: Our scripture reading today comes from Philippians chapter 2 verses 19 through 30. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father And has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: Good morning, everybody. I'm Tom. Welcome to the Leawood campus. Uh, We're really glad you're here, and happy Mother's Day, and uh, to all the families, congratulations on such an awesome morning. Uh, It's it's always a delight for pastors and for our church family. I always love sports. I've loved them since I've been this high. And uh, watching the Kansas City Royals, at least early on this season, um, it's been a little slump, I'm still hopeful, just want you to know, it's reminded me of that incredible 2015 season. If you were a part of Kansas City, you knew how amazing it was here. The Royals lifting the World Series championship trophy high. And uh, I wondered as I did some reflection on this amazing team, what was it about this team that made it so amazing? And uh, Dayton Moore, the general manager, was asked about this team. And he said, it really began in spring training. He said, I said to the guys, we're not smarter than anyone else. Quote, we don't work harder than anyone else, but we have to care more than anyone else. The secret sauce of the Royals' championship team was caring a lot. Yes, they cared for the game, of course. But perhaps most impressive was how much they cared for each other. And after winning the World Series, a New York Times reporter pointed to Royals' then-manager, Ned Yost, and his, what he called, sportive affection for his players and quotes these words, "'I love these guys,' Yost told me. "'I really love them.'" Now, as I reflect on the amazing 2015 championship team, I'm reminded of many things, but mostly that teams who accomplish great things, y'all, require much more than great talent. They inevitably forge deep friendships. Great teams on any arena in the corporate world, Any context are made up of deep, caring friendships, and they become a close knit community. Researchers often describe it in this intangible, almost mystical reality as team chemistry. And what we know increasingly through many knowledge lenses is that team chemistry is fueled by joy. Joy is, after all, a team sport. But when it comes to the Christian faith, somehow I think we tend to forget that. There's such a strong tug of an individualistic, consumeristic, me-centered kind of Christian faith that somehow we miss the deep joy our hearts so long for. And embedded in this quest, this existential quest, is a deep irony. The the more we build our Christian faith around a consumer approach, a me-centered Christianity, around personal preference or personal comfort, ironically, we lose joy. And the truth that we are going to see in our text this morning is we get joy, not by trying to get joy, y'all, on our own. In fact, joy almost never happens when we chase after it. But rather, as we'll see, when we put ourselves on the path to joy. How do we do that? Well, if you have a Bible, I'd like you to turn with me to the New Testament letter, Philippians chapter 2. If you've been part of our conversation here online, you know that as a church family, we have been exploring the Apostle Paul's amazing, inspired letter to the first century faith community called Philippi in Greece. And as you know, one of the primary themes that's repeated all the way through this amazing letter, written, yes, from a prison, is joy. And in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul will help us begin to put us back on this path of joy, Paul will help us return to joy and he helps us see that joy flourishes when we give ourselves to something bigger than joy itself. The true joy emerges in the context of a local church on mission together. Here in chapter 2, verses 19 through 29, Paul will in stunning ways, open up an instructive window into joy-filled faith, a community that has remarkable team chemistry brimming with joy. And he does it by highlighting two apprentices of Jesus in the first century, Timothy and Epaphroditus. And as he highlights it through his literary showcase, he gives us three essential ingredients in the chemistry of joy and this is how the text flows friendship mission and sacrifice because great team chemistry and joy emerges as we will see in this text when deep friendships are forged when Christ's mission is embraced and yes when sacrifices are made you ready here we go the first essential in this text is the deep friendships are forged Paul describes, isn't it amazing, his relationship with Timothy in verse 20. He says, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare or or, or well-being, for they all seek after their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's worth, proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served with me in the gospel. Now, if you've read the New Testament, you know that this is unusual. Paul's high... Exuberant, may I say, effusive praise and tender affection for Timothy are stunning in New Testament literature. The backdrop of this story is Acts chapter 16 that Dr. Luke writes, and Luke tells us that Paul met Timothy on his second missionary journey as he entered into Greece. Now, Timothy was so impressive to everyone around him as a young man, and Luke tells us that, everyone in his community that when Paul meets this young apprentice of Jesus, Paul too is impressed with Timothy and so impressed that he makes a bold ask. Can you imagine? That Paul asked Timothy to travel with him across the rugged and adventurous and, yes, dangerous Roman Empire to take the gospel in a church-planting mission. And Timothy says, Yes. Wow. Ten years or so have now passed since that first introduction. There is Timothy side by side with the Apostle Paul who's in prison in Rome. And you begin to see that over those ten years, a deep friendship has been forged between Paul and Timothy who have traveled and served together. And let's face it, if you've traveled with someone for any period of time, you kind of get to know them, right? Or if you camp out with the family members, right? Right? There's something about traveling together. You see it all, right? The the good, bad, and the ugly. And when you travel together in an adventure, it forges deep bonds and cements shared memories. And this text is brimming with that. In the context of their collaborative mission, Paul and Timothy had become like father and son in their affection, yes, and in their love and loyalty to one another. So notice here in verses 20 through 22, Paul describes Timothy, as we may say, in a unique class by himself. Paul says something stunning, I have no one like him. Paul reminds the Philippians of Timothy's proven worth, his impeccable character, his unwavering faithfulness to Jesus and to the gospel. This is high praise indeed, the highest Paul gives. Now again, Paul's not putting Timothy on some celebrity pedestal, no, 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 no. But he is lifting him up as an example for the Philippian believers to emulate. Now, for some of you who have read much of the New Testament, or if you're newer, I want you to see something here. Paul does something from a literary rhetorical perspective that is really stunning. He emphasizes something. The effusive words of high praise by the Apostle Paul for a specific individual, apart from here, are focused on a beginning and the ending of a letter but he places this section right in the middle, smacked out in the middle of the letter. He wants us to see how important this is. Now let's remember that as Paul writes this letter to the first century church, this letter is not written to us per se, but it is written for us, for our encouragement and instruction. Paul, Timothy, and Philippians, they're all on mission together. They have joined minds, hearts, and hands in something much bigger than themselves. They're taking the gospel, the kingdom, to the Roman Empire. They're establishing local churches and making disciples of Jesus. And the danger for us, if we have any level of familiarity, is a superficial blindness. We may scoot over these verses, and we miss a very important truth for us today. What is that truth? that our mission cannot go further if our relationships don't go deeper. Our mission cannot go further if our relationships do not go deeper. And it is also true in a reciprocal, symbiotic kind of way. Our relationships will have a hard time going deeper if we are not on mission together. In other words... You will see in this text how friendship fuels mission, and mission forges friendships. Recently, I was chatting with someone who's a part of Christ's community. And you know, for all of us, the last 15 months have been crazy and isolating, and it was so fun to have coffee with him in person. And I asked him how he was doing, how his work was, family, the kind of things I would ask and care about, and he said, yeah, it's been a really hard year. Probably not surprised, Pastor Tom. But he said something that really encouraged me. He said, it's been our community group that's kept me in the game. Kept me in the game. And his eyes lit up. He said, it's been really hard. We've been trying to do Zoom and all the challenges. But this year, our community group has grown closer than we've ever been before. Now, Christ designed his local church missional community to be that kind of place where deepening friendships are forged, even in the hardest of times. Maybe Best in the hardest of times. But again, that takes time, doesn't it? It takes transparency. It takes effort on all our parts. And it's something we need to work on and continue to grow in here at Christ Community. This is why a small group with members of our local church family is so important. But let me be transparent for a moment. I think I usually am, but let me be a little more transparent. I have always been a person, you know, me at all, that's really passionate about mission. I'm a cause dude. I mean, from my toes to my head. But for way too long, I missed something really important that Paul models here. And that is the primary uh, primacy of relationships in living fully and joyfully into God's redemptive mission in the world. Close friendships are the joy fuel for mission advancement. For many years, I remember hearing and being taught Jesus' words referred to as the Great Commission. If you've been around the church, you might have heard of that. That is Jesus' kind of final commission in the end of uh, the Gospels to go and make disciples to the ends of the earth. Let me say that mission continues to animate me greatly. But I have seen something that I missed. And that is Jesus' missional challenge. I have not seen as I should have seen in light of Jesus' words earlier to his disciples the night before his crucifixion in the upper room. In that upper room, Jesus speaks about joy. It's a major theme. Joy flowing from deep friendships. He has forged with his disciples for three years. And Jesus invites them into deeper intimacy with himself and with each other. And he calls them for the first time in all the Gospels, friends, friends. Jesus calls his disciples to become a joy-filled missional community. And here's what we must not miss. We must grasp that the upper room relational intimacy and fueled as it is with joy occurs before Jesus gives his church the great commission. Hmm. In other words, Jesus calls his people to draw close to him and to one another before he commissions them to embrace the gospel mission to the world. So as we look at Paul's writing here to a first century church, that is, brimming with joy. It is a joy-filled community. There's great chemistry here, team chemistry. And it's not surprising because first ingredient of team chemistry is where deep friendships are forged. But notice where this text goes, the second ingredient, and that is Christ's mission is embraced. As our text continues, Paul zooms his literary lens in on another first-century apprentice of Jesus. His name is Epaphroditus. Now we don't know a lot about him, he's mentioned again once, but we do know something important about him. Epaphroditus is serving the gospel church planting mission throughout the Roman Empire by bringing Paul the financial offering collected by the church in Philippi. He also serves, bless you, as the courier of this letter back to the Philippians, So look with me at verse 25. Here's what he says. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother, and fellow worker, and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. I want you to notice the shift of tone. Notice with me Paul's missional and military language. He describes Epaphroditus as my fellow worker, but he builds on that to say, no, my fellow soldier. Paul's deepening relationship with Epaphroditus has been forged in the context of Jesus' kingdom mission. And knowing that gospel advancement takes place in the context of a massive spiritual battle, which the local church is enemy number one for the evil one, Paul frames Epaphroditus, notice, as a soldier in an invisible war. Do not miss that. Now, I have never been in the military. I have the greatest respect for those who do. And those who are a part of the military often tell me that in training or in conflict or in war, the deepest friendships are forged that they rarely ever experience in civilian life. Once they are complete strangers, diverse in maybe political things or background or race or economics, when they come together for love of country and for a bigger cause, they become close friends. They have each other's back and some will lay down their life for somebody else near them. See, close community is formed in the ongoing challenge of a cause that is greater than individual desire, comfort, or preference. Like a devoted soldier, Epaphroditus, clearly has wholeheartedly embraced Jesus and Jesus' mission in the world. He embraces his gospel mission, and when we embrace that mission, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer has brilliantly said, when Christ calls a person to himself, he calls him to die. The mission is costly. It's also worrisome for the Philippian church. Do you see this? In verses 26 to 27, Paul presses into this. For he, Epaphroditus, has been longing for you all and has been distressed. This is a really deep, strong word here in the original text. Because you heard that he was ill. In fact, Paul says, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Now, we don't know how the Philippian church had learned about Epaphras' grave illness. But we can imagine, can't we, how concerning it was to them? Now, this is not like the 21st century, so let's walk back in our sandals a moment. This is the first century. The first century, there was no instant communication, right? No cell phone or sat phone, like, bing. In the first century, information about everything, including loved ones, traveled very slowly, sporadically, through, yes, some written letters that were carried by travelers. There was no mail service, no UPS, nor FedEx. And what that meant in the midst of that difficult, unreliable, unexpected communication was waiting and waiting And yes, at times, worrying and worrying for loved ones. I remember as a young boy, a particularly bleak and worrisome Christmas. My oldest brother was in the Special Forces, which was the highest fatality rate in the Vietnam War. The most dangerous deployment. All of us... And our family knew it. And let me tell you, it brought clouds of worry to our world. Any news that came was, if you knew my brother at all, he was short with words. High in courage and short with words. And there were short little letters required for soldiers to write back to their families. Shortly before Christmas, my mom got a phone call. Yes, we had phones then, in case you're wondering. (laughs) From a military officer informing her that my brother had been very seriously wounded in combat and was in the Saigon hospital. That's all they could tell us. Let me tell you, we had no idea the nature of his injuries or whether he would ever come home again. Now, the good news is I'm grateful that my brother recovered from his physical wounds and eventually made it home. I'll never forget, never, the fearful clouds of worry that hovered over our home for several weeks as we waited and waited and worried and worried. But also, we'll never forget the joy when my brother walked through that door. See, whether it is anxious hours, maybe you have spent in a hospital waiting room, or those seemingly endless moments when your child disappears in a store or a mall, not knowing how a loved one is doing makes waiting and wondering a torturous, emotional experience. In our text, just below the inspired surface, is this worrisome, waiting tension. You can feel the emotions in Paul's words. Epaphroditus was at death's door, clearly, and Paul also gives praise, you'll notice, to God for Epaphroditus' seemingly miraculous recovery. And knowing that the Philippians have been waiting for word about Epaphroditus' well-being, Paul is suddenly filled with joy as he anticipates the joyful reunion that awaits Epaphroditus with his church family. Now let's remember this series through our campuses and across our church family, across our city, we have gleaned from neuroscience research and interpersonal neurobiology that helps us understand more how God made us and that we are hardwired for joy. We are hardwired for joy. And we have said that joy is experienced when someone is glad to be with us. This is embodied in our text so beautifully this morning. There's this energizing anticipation, do you feel it, do you see it, of a joy-filled reunion. Paul basically says in verse 30, even more than that, he says, like a wounded soldier returning from battle, give Epaphroditus a hero's welcome home. Wow. And when we see here in Paul's letter, we see that love for Jesus love for His church, and love for His kingdom mission go hand in hand. All three heart loves are nurtured and experienced in a joy-filled missional community. And sometimes when we hear the word mission, right, or missional, we might think of sort of a, a transactional commitment. In other words, something we joylessly have to do rather than something joyfully we get to be a part of. That's the greatest privilege of our life. When the Holy Scriptures call us to a mission, it does not frame it in some transactional, obligatory manner, but a joy-filled, relational life. And when there is a joy deficit in our lives, It not only points to a relational deficit, but Paul reminds us here, it points to a missional deficit in our lives. Since the beginning of Christ's community, we have had a mission, a God-given mission. And that is to be a caring family, a multiplying disciples, influencing our community and world for Jesus Christ. Over three decades, God continues to bless that mission. Our mission is not built... Around visionaries or celebrity personalities or consumer Christianity, but rather on a compelling, Christ centered discipleship mission. Our mission is embedded in a growing, loving, joy filled relationship that propels our disciple making mission forward. We have felt God's loving favor and we've seen God's amazing faithfulness as a church family in moving that mission forward not only here across our city but throughout the entire nation and yes, we are touching the globe. We continue to multiply disciples, build leaders, multiply churches for that's what Jesus commissioned his church to do. He's commissioned us to do. And I strongly believe through the eyes of faith and prayer Our most fruitful days are ahead of us. A joy-filled mission community has great team chemistry empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's where deep friendships are forged. It's where Christ's mission is embraced. And notice the third ingredient where this text goes. It's where sacrifices are made. Continuing his strong affirmation of Epaphrodites, Paul concludes in verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Now, when we read that, we may get the wrong impression. Paul's point here is not to criticize the Philippians in any way. Paul is immensely joyful and grateful for their commitments. It's one of his favorite churches. Can I say that? Paul is simply making the point that what the Philippians could not do in a personal way, Epaphroditus stepped out and did, and it almost cost him his life. Paphroditus had a willingness to sacrifice for others, for a cause greater than himself, and that is the fuel of joy in our lives and in our community. It is close-knit friendships that lead us to sacrifice. Recently, I received a book uh, by some wonderful writers that I think very highly of, and uh, I've mentioned them to you before in different places, Marcus Warner and particularly Jim Wilder, who's a uh, neuroscience theologian in, at Fuller. But they have a new book adapted. It's called Rare Leadership in the Workplace, and they sent it to me. Just, it's just out. But it captures this joy-filled reality. They write, passion, love, and sacrifice are all natural outgrowths of a joy-fueled culture. People will do hard things and make great sacrifices when they have joy in their relationships. See, we tend to think that joy or the path of joy is found in comfort, more days off, another vacation, and of course, these are good things for human flourishing. Yet the deepest joy our hearts long for comes in giving our life for something beyond us, something great, not being served, but serving, not in getting, but in giving, not in self-absorption, but in other-centered commitment. William James was a brilliant professor, father of American pragmatism, which is fascinating. Member of the metaphysical club at Harvard, 19th century. But he said something that has stuck with me for years and years and years. It's a moniker of my daily life. A moniker of my daily life. He said this, the greatest use of a life is to invest it in something that outlasts it. All of us give our lives to someone or something. We do. And Paul reminds us in our text this morning that Timothy and Epaphroditus and the joy filled missional community of the Philippian church gave their lives to something that would outlast them. We are sitting here because of that. In the process, they experience amazing joy. And they exhibit for us the winning team chemistry of friendship, mission, and sacrifice. So how does this apply to us? Let me suggest two important questions for your consideration this week. And you may want to write them down or put them in your heart. First, are you all in with Jesus? Joy flows from a growing intimacy with Jesus who is delighted to be with us. And in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus invites each one of us to be all in with him to give your life to him and his kingdom mission. Jesus is the most joyful person to ever grace this planet. And in his invitation is where joy is found. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you will find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. I don't know where you are in your spiritual journey, but have you responded to Jesus' gracious and loving great invitation? When we enter his yoke of submission and trust and become his apprentice, not merely an admirer, but an apprentice, we say goodbye to an old way of life in order to experience the joy-filled life Jesus offers us as we learn from him. Are you all in with Jesus? Secondly, are you all in with Jesus' church? The Holy Scriptures describe Jesus' church as his bride. And as his bride, the local church is what Jesus loves and cherishes most. The more we love Jesus, the more we love what Jesus loves. And Jesus loves passionately his bride, the church. Even when she fails and even when she's not perfect. The question for us as we read these texts, these letters, is do we love our local church family as Jesus does? Do we express that love by diligently praying for our church family, by giving generously to our church family, by serving our church family? Jesus designed the local church to be a primary place where joy flourishes. If we have a local church deficit in our life, we will have a joy deficit in our life. And if you want joy... You need the local church, and so do I. Now, the past 15 months have not been easy, right? But we're starting to come back. And let me just be transparent. Some of us, because of disappointment in the church or disagreement with others in the church, have kind of found ourselves in an emotional distance from the church family, and I get that. Let me just say, I've said this so many times in the last 15 months, none of us have been our best selves during the pandemic including me. Nor is every decision. Any of us have, may made been perfect, y'all. But let's get back to being the church. Let's get back to loving each other well, more unified than ever, focusing on the majors of our God-given mission. And for those of us who have been joining us online, we're so glad you're worshiping with us. And we encourage you as you feel comfortable to come back in person. Come back soon. And for many of you who are worshiping with us in person, will you start serving again? You heard Pastor Don talk about that. We need you to start rolling up your sleeves so we can be the church. Those of you, and there's several of you, even here this morning, who have become part of the church family during the COVID pandemic, let me just say, we are so glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. We are delighted you're a part of Christ's community. So take the next step. Get in a small group. Make a commitment of your time, talent, and treasure here. And let me remind all of us that while we are called to support our church family, which is important, where God has called you Monday, tomorrow, is your primary place of worship, formation, and mission. We are a church for Monday. That's the mission of discipleship. And moms on Mother's Day... The primary place of mission may well be at your home with your children or grandparents with your grandchildren. It's an awesome gig, isn't it? For others, that primary place of being on mission with Jesus is our neighborhood or a community volunteer or in a paid workplace or in our classroom. So how do we return to joy? Paul reminds us we return to our church family. Why? Because joy, the joy your heart longs for and my heart longs for is truly a team sport. Let's pray. Father, we lean into you this morning and ask that you would give us the joy our hearts long for as we follow you, Jesus, as your apprentice and love and serve your church, both gathered and scattered on mission. Amen.